Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Rabbi Earl Grohman, and our topic is Healing with Hope. Rabbi Grohman is a noted writer, lecturer, and teacher. He is the author of 27 books on crisis management. He was rabbi of the Beth Al Temple Center, Belmont, Massachusetts, for 36 years before taking early retirement to write and address countless groups around the world. He was one of the founders of Samaritans, a national organization for suicide prevention and intervention. Dr. Grohman also helped establish Good Grief, which helps schools around the nation deal with grief. His 27th book and newest book is Living with Loss, Healing with Hope, A Jewish Perspective. Welcome to the show, Rabbi Earl Grohman. Well, nice to be with you. Oh, Rabbi Grohman, it's wonderful to have you on. And before we get to this idea of God doesn't give us more than we can bear, I wanted to ask you, uh, how did you get into the field of being a rabbi? Interesting thing is when I was, I saw Elizabeth Kubler-Ross just a few weeks before she died, and, and I was speaking to her, and I said, how did you become involved in all of this? And she said, I didn't choose it, it chose me. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us who work in, in the field of dying and death and thanatology, all of us in hospice, all of us say the same thing. Uh, I am the most unlikely person to talk about dying and death. I come from a family where the word death was never discussed. I'm sure some of the readers and the listeners now are nodding their head. You know, you don't talk about it. The children, uh, we never talked about it. I remember when my grandmother died, I wasn't permitted to go to the funeral because I was too young. I was 14 years old. Wow. I was the intercollegiate wrestling champion of the state of Maryland, but because my parents loved me and they wanted to protect me, they said... Earl, it's no place for children. Mm -hmm. In order to be ordained a clergy person in my denomination, I went four years to college and six years to seminary. In my seminary, as in most seminaries, as in many schools even today, graduate schools of social work, where it's an elective course, Mm -hmm. we never discussed death. Mm -hmm. We had courses in theology, is there life after life? We had courses in liturgy what kind of prayers to be intoned, but nothing what happens when real people die. I was ordained, and I came to Boston as an assistant clergy person. And when the assistant clergy person comes to town, it doesn't make any difference what the denomination is, Catholic or Protestant or Jewish. That very day, the senior minister goes on vacation. <laughs> and I'm all by myself in this very large synagogue in Boston, and the very first telephone call, somebody says, Rabbi Grohlman. And I said, yes, because I thought that's the way clergy should sound. <laughs> and the person said, our 12-year-old son just rounded a summer camp in Maine. Oh, no. oh, oh, it was my whoa. first confrontation with uh, death, the first time I had ever been in a funeral home, wow. the first time I had ever seen a dead body, and I was expected to give solace and comfort and consolation and I didn't know exactly what I was doing. Whoa, that is quite a baptism by fire, as it were. And so what happened is that, you know, I conducted services. I, uh, I 
tried to console the bereaved without any background, with any understanding. And something happened in, in my own personal life. My closest friend died, and I walked into the home, and the children didn't say, Rabbi Grohlman or Dr. Grohlman, which separates me. They said, Uncle Earl, what do I do? <laughs> I didn't know. Should they go to the funeral? How could I help them? I thought all I had to do, I live in Boston, all I had to do was go to the Widener Library at Harvard and take out a book on dying and death for children. Not one single book. This is in the early 1960s, before Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in 69, before mm-hmm. the first hospice in 1967, and nothing was there. And I was taking postdoctoral studies, and, and uh, I began thinking about, you know, this is a subject somebody should talk about, but you know, not me. I don't know anything about it. And... And and the the idea of if not you, then who, right? Yeah, and the day of the funeral, and I couldn't, and I think clergy who are listening will understand, sometimes I'm angry when I have to officiate at the funeral of people I love. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because I want to be in the congregation. I want to Uh, You want to be be taken care of, too. Yeah. Exactly. And and I received a telephone call from a Dr. Gerald Kaplan at the Harvard Community School of Psychiatry. And I had written other books at that time. I had written a book on Sigmund Freud, a book on existential psychiatry. You know, it's nice, nice, nice little books. And he said, I know you're interested in the field of psychiatry. You've written in it. Would you be interested in coming to Harvard and teaching and working and becoming part of our bereavement team? Ah. And I laughed. I thought all I could think of when he said bereavement team was the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> we hadn't won the World Series since 1918, and that began my excursion into the field of dying and death and bereavement. And this is this is the field which I feel that I I feel the most needed because it's not only that I'm there to help them; they help me. Mm-hmm. They help me to understand who I am and to understand what's really important in life. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting to hear uh, hear you talk about um, your family dealing with death because one of the things that uh, I was reading your book on living with loss, healing with hope, which is a, a wonderful book. And um, would you say that again, please? <laughs> it's a wonderful book, and you know, underneath it says a Jewish perspective, which I think is is interesting that it's there. But I want to say to all our audience, if you're not Jewish, this is a wonderful book to get. It, well, the book, the book that the, the general book is living when a loved one has died, which is in Beacon Press, which is a, it's, the press is 167 years old. It's the fifth best-selling book. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, you just got, you know, the thing I love about it is that you've got, in the one I've got here, the Living with Loss and Healing with Hope, I love it because it's not dense reading. You know, after you've had a loss, you're Mm -hmm. not always into reading pages and pages and pages, and you've just got these wonderful tips and and wonderful uh, sayings, and it's really a lovely book. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, I like it very much. But what what I wanted to say is um, I was surprised in looking at this book because the Jewish uh, faith has so many uh, wonderful rituals around grief and loss, but your parents didn't get it or, you know, uh, they just didn't want to include you in the rituals. Did they do the Jewish rituals? I think it's, it's true for many of us, especially if we lived in an urban community. You know, adults say, Adults say, I can't handle it. How can my poor kids understand it? Mm-hmm. And so 
I think this was true. It's, adults are consumed with their own pain, with their own agony, with their own torment. And, uh, you know, the children, what do they know? Uh, the children are the forgotten mourners. I remember as a clergy person, I'd walk into her home, talk to all of the adults, while the kids were all by themselves crying their eyes out. Mm-hmm. And so we somehow felt that the children were too young, they couldn't understand, and this is the great, this is the great problem that we've had dealing with, with children, is not understanding with, that a person is a person no matter how small. And, and like you said, your, your parents thought they were doing the best thing for you by not including you. Correct. But I'll have to say, as a parent, and, you know, or my son was killed uh, 23 years ago, uh, Heidi's brother, one of the things that I found was I, it was hard for me to see the kids suffer. I mean, in a way, you don't want to bring them in because then you have to see them suffer too. You know, what we try to we, we want to pretend that life is unchanged. Right. I think the worst problem is the youngster's lack of understanding because of adult secrecy. We don't want them to see our grief because yeah. expressing our own feelings that are natural to the situation, this, this provides the child with a basis for expressing his or her own feelings, anger, guilt, despair, protest, or as normal for the youngster as for you, the adult, the parent. One thing as a parent who's lost a child is that I didn't want to, it was hard on me. I was suffering so much to see the children suffering too. So, so there's kind of not wanting them to suffer too much, even though, of course, they are. And Heidi, you talk a little bit about how you wanted to protect me and, and your dad. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I think children and, and teenagers and young adults often do hide their grief from their parents because we feel like our parents have been through so much already and they're in so much pain that we don't want to add to that. And like you said, Mom, and the parents, on the other hand, are also doing the same thing. They're protecting their kids from further pain. Yeah, so it becomes kind of a strange situation, doesn't it, Rabbi Grillman? Mm-hmm. I mean, the kids really want to talk. I, mm-hmm. I am invited all over the country, all over the world, and I'll come in and principal of a school will say the kids are handling it great. And, you know, there's no problem. And the kids want to talk. We just don't give them the opportunity. Well, well like you, you pointed out, Rabbi Coleman, I agree with you. The kids want their, their pain and their loss to be acknowledged and validated because they've had significant losses. They've lost their siblings or their friends and, or their parents, and these are huge losses. And it's, I mean, there are all kinds of losses. It's, if it's an older, if it's an older, if it's a sibling, if it's a sibling, it's all kinds of stress that may have evolved. You know, if it's an older sibling, it may have been the role model. And mm-hmm. it's also the feeling it, it can happen to me. And I'm, I'm sure, Heidi, mm-hmm. and you and I are talking for the first time, that, when, that, when, that after the death you begin thinking, you know, life is insecure. You lost your innocence. You Absolutely. It could happen, too. And all of a sudden, you became more attached to your parents than ever before, and you began thinking, if, if, my, if, if my sibling can die, it can happen to my parents who are older than I, and an old person is somebody 15 years older than you. Yeah, absolutely. It does turn your world upside down, and, and I'm thinking for myself and for many listeners, if my younger brother can die, I can die. Yeah. I mean, it does turn your world upside down and put things into question. 
And you know? also the idea of, uh, as you said, Rabbi Grohlman, about it pulls you back into the family at a time when you're trying to, Heidi was uh, off in college and, and coming back, you know, into the family in that intense way, I'm sure is difficult also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the important thing is, is they want to talk, listen, don't say, how are you? Mm. Because the child will say, fine. Uh-huh. Say, let them know that you are in pain too. Uh, let them see, let them see where you are. Encourage them to participate in the family sorrow. They need to express their own emotions through the ceremonies of death, whether it's the wake, the funeral, the shiver, the interment. Uh, don't plan a one-tell-it-all. You know, I already told you, it's a continuing dialogue. You have to go over and over and over again. I like the idea of it's a family sorrow, don't you, Heidi? Absolutely. And I was just wondering if, if you know a child that's grieving right now, what is the best way to approach him and her as far as the first interaction you would have? What would you say? When I walk in, if I walk in as a therapist or as a counselor, I think the most important thing is to find a convenient place, mm-hmm. you know, where both of you can talk mm-hmm. and just say, I'm going to tell you something, you know, I'm going to tell you something, Heidi, you know, you know, we haven't, you've noticed us, you know, you're away at college and things are happening, but we really haven't, we really need to talk and things are happening and, and the more you're able to talk with us because we're still a family. So you encourage them, and, and you may have lots of questions and thoughts that you want to know. Uh, you, you listen to the child's questions. You listen to the feelings behind the, the questions. And find out you validate a child in grief. When someone dies, a child often feels many things at once. It can be confusing, overwhelming. It's scary. In addition, the feelings are new to them. And it makes them even more frightened. And the child asks the question and needs to validate the feelings. Now, how do what, you find what are you, what yeah. are you? So I would say, Heidi, what are you thinking? Let me mm-hmm. tell you what I'm thinking. You are okay. It's natural to feel that way. Don't minimize their feelings by saying things. You shouldn't feel like that. Right. Don't worry. That's silly. Don't go through all of the platitudes. Uh, the general generalities, you know, everything will be all right. It's very common not to know what to say in answer to some of the questions. And sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know of. I've often wondered about that myself. Let's talk about it. Tell mm-hmm. me more about how you're feeling. Well, Rabbi Groman, um, you know how devastated parents are when they lose a child. And um, I'm wondering, I, I think it's um, wonderful that there is a third party like you that can come and give support. Do you think that's one of our problems with society today, that there aren't, isn't enough community or third parties or whatever that can come in and help the family? Well, it, we, almost think, we almost think that it's, when we walk in and the, and the child dies, we, we speak to the parents, and then we think, it, it's, it's, you know, a month or two or three, you know, aren't you better yet? Right. It's been two or three months. You've got to get a hold of yourself. You know, all of, all of the questions that you've been, you know, it's God's will. I spoke, I spoke three weeks ago before, before a group of 200 clergy, and I said, what do you mean it's God's will? God's will that somebody should be in an accident, that, that this is what's caused it? Then God must be my enemy. 
<laughs> right. And don't come around with, I don't even like the word heaven. Mm-hmm. If you say to a child, I mean, I'm not trying to get involved in theology, right. but I say this, 95% of my speaking is for non-Jewish groups. Mm-hmm. But if I say your child, your, your brother is now up in heaven, then why are you putting him in the ground? How does he get up there? Right. That's and a good children point. know more about what's happening than any professional ever thought. It's mm-hmm. like the child coming back from school, and the mother said, and then the mother said, your, your cat is now up in heaven. And the little kid said, what does God want a dead cat for? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great. And, and, you know, I've had kids say, well, why are they in heaven? Why don't they want to live with me? Why would they rather be somewhere else? So be careful. Don't, don't. Two things happen when we talk to young people. We don't talk at all because they can't understand or we, we're too emotionally involved or we over-answer. What are you really asking? You know, it's like the old canard, the old statement, is when a child asks that question that you never wanted to hear, and he said, how do I get here? You know, where do I come from? And you go through all the biological processes, and the kid really wants to know if he's from Pittsburgh or Cincinnati. <laughs> right. So find out what well, is it that you're asking. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, Rabbi Groman, let me ask you about this email that re- we received from Zola where her brother died, her 50-year-old brother, and then a couple of weeks later her mother died, and she's wondering about this idea that God will not give you more than you can. Well, her point handle. was she said he will never leave or forsake us. And and he won't give us more than we can bear. How, what would and you she's say? Feeling like she ha- she, she's feeling right now like she does have more than she can handle and bear. Right. I don't argue with people in bereavement. If they, even people who go to church or synagogue or the mosque regularly say, there is no God, how could God do this? Right. Don't argue and say, there's, what do you mean there's no God? Just mm-hmm. say, isn't it nice that you could say this to me? What you're doing is is that... Asking questions of faith are normal questions. You know, throughout the Bible, these are the questions. And Abraham says, Abraham, when his wife dies, he cries for her, even though she's an old person. And, and he says, shall not the God of justice do justly? Job says it. And throughout the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. So... I have to tell you, when I was in Oklahoma City, and I was called to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm, the bombing, after the bombing. After the bombing. And I will never forget saying, if some of you are angry, that, are, you, are you angry at God, I give you permission. I'm speaking at a Sunday morning service mm-hmm. in a church of a thousand people. Mm-hmm. If you're angry, God can take it. All right. I like For that. For the first time ever. People stood up and applauded. The, the, the people whose, whose family had died stood up and applauded. Uh. Actual normal questions. And when they come in, oh, you know, all of these easy, glittering generalities, well, you know, he lived to a ripe old age. doesn't make any difference. My mother mm-hmm. died at 92, and I never felt I could grieve because how could I be so insensitive to grieve after people die at that it's my mother. It's my loss alone. Exactly. You miss her. Are most important than words are pushing, putting our hand out and touching and listening. And just say, mm-hmm. boy, it must be. Don't say, how are you? Is everything okay? 
just say, just touch them. Reach out and hold them and say, I say it must be tough as hell. Right. The word hell comes from those. People like that. People like, like you said, people love when you say, this is really, this must be really difficult. Yeah. Well, so we'd say to Zola with her email that it's okay to be angry with God and question the idea that you won't be given more than you can tolerate. Or, you know, Rabbi Grohlman gives you permission to. I love that Rabbi Grohlman says, and God can take it. Do you think our society, do we rage enough? I know sometimes on TV I'll see the European countries where people seem to express their grief a lot more in group. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think when I was a, a little boy many years ago, I was taught angry thoughts make bad people. Mm-hmm. Wrong. Angry thoughts make very human people. Oh, uh, that's angry, a nice comment. I want to repeat that. Angry thoughts make human people. Yeah. Make we're angry because life isn't fair. It's the loss of our assumptive world, which we thought would happen, isn't going to happen. The, the child that you had is, will, no, will no longer be with you. When you watch, you watch his, how old was he when he died? Uh, he was 17, you killed in an him. automobile accident. You Scott. watch when people graduated college in high school, and you said, my son would be graduating now. Yeah. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, when we deal when we deal with loss to understand that grief is an emotion it's not a disease a oh i like is, that that grief is as natural as eating when you're hungry drinking when you're thirsty sleeping when you're tired that grief is nature's way of healing a broken heart that someone you love has died and part of you has been buried with your loved one and that anger and pain and fear wash over you in waves you may hurt so much that you may even want to die, too. Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. that moment, you wonder if you will ever survive. And and talk about this idea of the stage theory, you know, where people think that you have to go through these different stages. I mean, I, I speak, I'm speaking later today. I'm in Boston now at a hospice. And the first thing I will say is forget the, forget the stages. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear people yelling at their yelling at their clients, their patients, I brought you to stage three, you have regressed. (laughs) It's not a cookbook. People grieve in different ways, according to so many different variations, their ethnic backgrounds. You know, if you live in the Middle East, you can cry and scream, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But, But somehow, you know, people will say to me, you know, I hope I don't cry, I don't want to break down, especially if they're men because there's often a great differential the way men and women grew. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. That was going to be my next question. And and I will say to them, cars break down. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Cars break down. That is excellent. And so, so allow people, it depends upon so many variations. What is your relationship to the person? Mm -hmm. I'm going to say something nobody has said to you in your program. Sometimes we're glad people die. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, sometimes there's they have hurt us, they have molested us, and sometimes, and sometimes it comes after a long illness. And I do a lot of I've written a book on Alzheimer's, and with many of the people in my in my clinical training, you know, will say, you know, thank God it's over. Right. You know, after ten years, when the person no longer recognizes who he or she, and and that's so complex. That's so complex, Rabbi Grohlman, because while many people are relieved when somebody dies, 
um, then there's that guilt. You feel guilty for feeling that way. Then, then, you, then you can say, isn't it nice? You can, the important thing to do is not only to validate their feelings, but mm-hmm. to ventilate their feelings. So let the, the most important thing I say to people, wherever I go after school shootings, after ground zero, if I can say grief is not, is not a sickness. Mm-hmm. It's, and, it doesn't, and you're not crazy. This is what most people think what happens. I'm crazy. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't concentrate. I'm driving my car. I come to a red light. I forgot whether the red light means stop or go. I, come, I go to make a bank deposit, deposit slip. I forgot how. Mm-hmm. Don't tell mm-hmm. anybody. Oh, my gosh, I, I, I am so, I, my audience has got to feel the same way because I am feeling, wow, I remember that when I couldn't remember whether the light meant go or stop. And I can't, I, sometimes I can't, what I'm trying to say is when someone is dying, part of you has died. When mm-hmm. someone has died, life will never again be the same. And the idea, you know, is there closure there's, there's no such, what is, it's not, you don't all of a sudden, two months later or six months later, it's always there. And well, and, and, and Bob Niemeyer, who was a guest on our show, said closure is for bank accounts, not love accounts. And that's very good. Mm-hmm. Now talk about in, healing. I'll use that in my next speech. <laughs> uh, talk about healing, Rabbi Grohlman. Now we know that, you know, you'll, the grief will always be with you, but the suffering, I think, decreases. Well, First of all, time is neutral. I know people who are worse off now than when their husband, their wife, their son, their daughter died 5 or 10 or 15 years ago. So time is neutral. It's not time heals. It's what we do with our time. Mm -hmm. So in terms of healing, the first thing we do is we validate their feelings. How you feel, Heidi, whatever you may feel, it's okay. These are your feelings. Accept these feelings. They're not good. They're not bad. These are your normal feelings, and everyone is different. Depends upon your relationship to the person, how you handle other kinds of stressors in your life, and what kinds of support are you receiving. But after, after that, I think what we have to do is, after we validate, we have to ventilate. We have to let it go. Now, do men always do that? I know some men, uh, I run a compassionate friends group in Palo Alto for, you know, people who have lost children. And, and uh, a lot of times they talk about men don't want to go, their wives come, because men don't want to hear other people's stories and they don't want to talk. And do you have that experience? The, the statistics are that 10% of men join a support group, mm-hmm. only 10%. And mm-hmm. the exception is Alcohols Anonymous. Right. And that's changing. Because men, to, to let go of their feelings, you know, means you're soft. You mean right. it, uh, it's, it's not manly. If I fell down, if I wanted to swing and if I fell down, and people, my parents might say, you know, big boys don't cry. Take it like a man. And sometimes we let go in different ways. Uh, and so very often when the husband and when the child dies, husband and wife are in different places. First of all, the husband goes back to work. Mm-hmm. The woman may go back to work, but there's there's support. Mm-hmm. And women can kind of cry at work, too, if they need and to. They can cry at work. They can cry with their friends. The men come back. Somebody may say, I'm sorry to hear that, you're, that, you're, that your son died and, you know, it must be hard. And that's the end of the conversation. Right. And there was a study made. It, 
there was a study made of people of men in, that more men cry in movies than women. Do you know why? <laughs> that's interesting. This is dark, yeah. And, 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 you know, men are, oh, that's interesting. And, you know, men are, you, what you see often when you see emotions in men is the anger. They're more comfortable with the expression of anger right. than sadness because, like you said, they don't want to appear weak. That's why, that's why we're watching the Super Bowl. And mm-hmm. this, it's, it's the aggression, it's, and, and I root for the Patriots. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so the, the expression, so they need to express to start healing and then They what? need to express it in their own way, but men most often are not given the opportunity. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure this is true with your husband. After your son died, mm-hmm, absolutely, they came up. They came up to him and they said, "How is your wife? Mm-hmm. You listening? Mm-hmm. How is your wife? Not how are you?" Right. So somehow men aren't, aren't given permission. Men are strong, and and they cry. They it's okay to cry at sporting events. After every every sporting event, you know you're you see you see it you see uh, the the great player for Dallas. Crying. Right, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But not, but not, but, but not if someone close to him dies because he's a man. What What would you say to the men out there now who have lost a loved one? I'd say be yourself. Mm-hmm. I just say this is as natural for your for your spouse as for you. And if you need to, or if you want to, I give you permission. I'm not telling them they should. All we can do is give them permission to know that it's a safe place to do it. And that it's normal and that it's fine. And it's and normal and natural, and it helps people. And the more we're able to ventilate, the more we're able to let it out, the faster we will go in our healing process. And so letting it out, and then what would the next step be? Or not even taking it as steps. We don't want to get into that, caught into that. But what, what other things do people need to do to go what, on with healing? What is, the important thing is what you're doing is, is in terms of, I'm most helpful, not when I have answers. I have no answers. Mm-hmm. People have to find their own answers. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, their, I'm their eye doctor. I, I, I put their spectacles on so they can see more clearly. Mm, I like that. So, so I'm not there to tell them. But I am most helpful when I can tell them places where they may go to be of help. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that you work a great deal... Uh, with compassionate friends, and I've been to many of their meetings, and I know a great deal about them. And the important tell them that one person is no person. The solitary heart has to throb with others. We, uh, started, yeah. we started one in my community. I started with Harvard, one of the first widow and widower programs. Mm. And uh, I did this because I went into her home, and I'd written books. I thought I was the authority, and somebody said, is your wife living I said, yes. And she wasn't being insolent. She says, what the hell do you know? And I realized the people who could help people are the people who have been through it. They say, you know, I felt, I felt the same way. Or it's okay to feel this way. And then all of a sudden, one touch of sorrow makes the whole world kin. And uh-huh. so find out what are the support groups. And if they go to a support group like Compassionate Friends, tell them they can't go once. Do you know why? Why? Because they sit around and they say, what do I want to hear all these people's problems for? Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to go twice, and all of a sudden you know what you're... You, they're overwhelmed by it all. You have right. to go twice as you sit around the circle. Mm-hmm. And to know what are the support groups. And also to know that sometimes you're stuck in your grief. You know, you can't get up in the morning. Uh, 
You don't want to be with friends. You don't want to go to work. You know, life after a period of time has no meaning whatsoever. And going for professional help is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. Yeah. It means well, you want to take charge of your life. But make sure that the, that the therapist that you're seeing has had a background in grief therapy. Um, Rabbi Grohlman, uh, I just wanted to say it's just really an honor to have you on our show. It's this is pleasure. our our last break, and it's really been enjoyable. And I just want to say that he has many books that you, I'm sure they're all on uh, um, Amazon or wherever you can check with your local bookstore. But he has things on Alzheimer's, uh, suicide, divorce. dealing with teenagers. Um, I think what we're saying is very often. We think only of loss as death. Mm-hmm. But loss goes in many different ways. You know, then with our economy, when people lose their jobs, and when you move from one place to another, uh, one of the worst losses is when you're going through a divorce. Mm-hmm. And I know right. some people won't be happy when I say this. In many ways, and I've written three books on divorce, divorce is differently difficult than death. Yes, yes. I've because had people say death. to me, I would wish they had died. It would be yeah. easier. Yeah. You know, because with death, whether you like it or not, there's the hole in the ground, there's the person. With divorce, it's never over. The only time you have an amicable divorce is if there's no money involved, no children involved, and both parties have found different mates, and who takes custody of the friends. Right. So, there's, so I think when we talk with people, find out what other losses are going on in their own life in terms of sickness and health and everything else. Yeah, and think about our audience. Uh, think out there about the other losses that you've had, too. You may be going through through many losses as well as the loss of a family member. Well, I wanted to get back to talking about grief and loss with you before we end the show, Rabbi Grohlman, and I wanted to talk. One thing I wanted to just hit on, because I think, I think it's so key, you talk about it in your book, is solitude, that it's okay to have some solitude. Could you talk a little bit about that? And then I'd like to talk about recovering from grief. So I I was with somebody just recently. This is after the the Christmas. This is after New Year's, and he said, "You know, my my wife died three years ago. In the last two years, and my family lived far away, and I've been with friends, and I, I like being. You know, they were very congenial and nice and warm and compassionate." He said, "But this year I decided to be by myself, and I listened to some of the songs that we used to sing. I had a glass of wine." If you're not a Baptist, and that's a joke, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I began, to, and I began thinking, looking through some of some of the old photos, and you know, I, sometimes I need my own, my own, I need my own solitude, and sometimes just taking a walk, walk going into the park, finding a little time for yourself, I think it is so important. I think in terms of recovery, the important thing is be patient with yourself. Your yeah, I, mind and body and soul need time and energy to mend. Right. I liked where you said in here that solitude, in your book you say that solitude is not loneliness. Loneliness is the pain of being alone. Solitude is the satisfaction in being alive. Mm, I like that. Because I think sometimes people are so afraid to let us be have some time out from this grieving process or having people around or, you know, what are you doing now? I always say that grief is like weeding a flower bed in the summer. You have to do it over and over again until the seasons change. 
Oh, what a lovely analogy. That's wonderful. Well, could you talk a little bit about recovering from grief and the work of grief, that it is work? And as you say, it's not always just time. If people don't do the work, they're not going to, you know. We talked about accepting your grief, expressing your grief. I think you have to monitor your health. You eat as well as you can for your own body needs nourishment. After the grueling experience of, of grief, depression can also be lightened by biochemical changes through exercise and put balance back into your life. And I, I'm finding, especially with older people now, avoid the abuse of alcohol and drugs. Mm-hmm. Drugs and alcohol can sedate for the moment, but they ultimately leave the nervous system in shreds. Mm-hmm. I think the importance of sharing the pain of your darkness with a friend or friends. Don't withdraw from others because by your silence, you deny them the opportunity to share your own inner self. Mm. And I think sometimes by helping others, you know, by devoting your energies to people and causes, you learn to better relate, to face your own reality. You become more independent and let go of the past by living in the present. Yeah, that um, starting to help others, I think, really, even if you can, uh, I always say to the people at the Compassionate Friends group, even if you can bring a cookie uh, the first time you start doing that or, or put your hand on another person's arm or whatever, the smallest thing starts you in that direction of empowering you and making you feel like you can make a difference in the world you still. Said, you just said something so profound. There's not, when people say, what can you do? It's not the big things, it's the small things that count. Mm-hmm. It's, it's calling afterwards and saying, I'm thinking of you. Or, can I take your children out? Or can I'm, do you need somebody to, to go shopping with you? It's, there's, nothing, there's nothing great. It's, it's the little things that I think all of us can do, you know, to let them people know that, that a friend is there, that even though the death takes a life, that it doesn't end the relationship. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And, and I think... Do what has to be done, but you delay the major decisions. <clears throat> Begin with little things. That's what you're talking about. You know, a single chore that can be accomplished, that can restore your confidence. But wait, if you can, before deciding immediately to sell your house or to change jobs. And I think most important is determined to live again. Mm, just adjusted. making that decision. I remember I made a decision that I would not get sick. And so I started eating a little better and working out, you know, walking and things like that. What you're doing now is you're you're putting into words something which is true because you've lived through it. Mm -hmm. People have said to me, where did you get your information? It's the people who have been through it who can say, this is what helped me. Now, it may not help you, but you might consider it. Mm-hmm. So, again, all we can do is let people know these are possibilities which you might like to do. Mm-hmm. And let them know that it's, and if you're a friend, let them know that it's, that it's not over and that, you, that you'll continue to be with them. This, I think, is the most important thing of all, to let them know, or, you know, continue to call and visit, uh, remember holidays and birthdays and anniversaries. You know, do all of the things. Send a personal letter. You know, now, what, a, what about, speaking of this, uh, it gets me into friends. How about the old friends that we lose and the, the new friends and how some people can't handle grief? That's a painful spot. What I will often say to people is it's not only the death of your son or your, or your brother, it's the death often of friends. 
and you find out you have new friends. Maybe the person you're seeing in the grocery store you know, come over to you and say, Gloria, my child died too. And all of a sudden there's a bond that grows. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some people who, who, who feel that, you know, by not talking about your son or your brother, they're helping you. I think you have to tell them. You, you are in the best position to tell them. And, and people will say, but, but they don't mention it. Tell them that you need to talk about it. Tell them the more you're able to mention your, your son's name, the more you're able to feel that, that he lived for 17 years, not only that he died. The more that they're able to recall reminiscences of the past gives you a sense that he lived for 17 years, even though the abrupt ending is so, so hurtful. Yeah, how, you have the responsibility to tell them. Right. Say, I think that's a good about point. And, training and I people. can handle it. You yeah. Know, it's, the, it's the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Can you say the name? If you can't say the name, then you're leaving me alone in the room with an elephant. Mm-hmm. Those are such good points. Well, Heidi, did you have anything you wanted to say to Dr. Uh, I was Dr. going to add to what Dr. Groman was saying and saying te- it sounds like what you're saying is teaching others how to be good grief support for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Important perspective. Well, Rabbi Grellman, it's been wonderful to have you on the show, and I would just highly recommend to our audience that they um, get your book and look at the, the other books that you've done because you have given so much to this field of grief right. and loss, hasn't he, Heidi? He absolutely has, and I've written down so many things today. I'm, you've just said so many profound, wonderful things that are so healing to the heart. I mean, I love that you said death takes a life, it doesn't end a relationship. That is so true. So it's time to close our show, and I want to thank Rabbi Earl Grillman. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.